economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lou Graham, the co-producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordon Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, our other graduate assistant, Nate Johnson. All right. So today we want to talk about classical liberalism, which is one of our topics of freedom and liberty. And there's another economist Don Boudreau of George Mason. I think I might have butchered that last name. Uh, Peter, is that you? Is that Boudreau? That was pretty good. Okay. And so he wrote an article, 20 of my priors that he has that hopefully help to identify what it means to be, oh, a classical liberal. And so we're not sure we agree with all of them, but we're going to run through these and think it'll give some thought-provoking ways to explore what we mean about freedom and liberty. And so, I don't know, any opening comments or should I just dive into number one? Let's really quickly, for people who might not have heard all the episodes before, say what you know classical liberalism is. So traditionally, classical liberalism is the idea that people should be left free to make choices insofar as they don't harm anybody else. It's where the word laissez-faire came from, which literally means leave us alone. Live and let live those sorts of expressions. Yes. And a classical liberal today is vaguely kind of synonymous with what's normally called libertarianism today. Yeah. So just to put that out there. All right. So number one on these 20, uh, each human being comes into this world as a moral agent with equal standing to every other human being. So I don't know. I kind of want to turn to our philosophy professor, moral agent. Is that just a person with morals? No, a moral agent is somebody who counts in the moral calculus. That is whose life you have to take into account when you are weighing decisions on what you ought to do. Okay. And also a moral agent is somebody who can be held responsible for the actions that they take. Okay. That makes Mm -hmm. a little more sense. So because we don't outlaw the killing of cows for steaks, a cow would not be a moral agent here, but could be in other cultures or not if we think about it. I don't even think something. a cow could ever be considered a moral agent. You might think that cows need to be counted, but I doubt anybody thinks that cows need to be held morally responsible. responsible yeah, right? Okay. So we got um, those two conditions. Yeah. So a moral agent, for somebody to be a moral agent, you have to fulfill, generally in the literature, that's what moral agent means. You have both rights and responsibilities, right? Yeah. So some people think that animals have rights. Very few people think that animals have the kind of responsibilities that moral agents have. Right. Right. All right, Peter, you want to take number two? Number two is that each individual, well, actually, before we do that, yeah, let's, so we've got moral agent aside, but what is the, you know, Justin, do you have any thoughts on the equal standing to every other human being? I even have thoughts about that comes into this world part. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't think you were going there, but love to hear about that. I don't know what this means. And depending on what we say about what we mean by comes into this world, Mm -hmm. we're going to have different takes on different people who agree and disagree with this claim. 
So first of all, I'm not sure that every human being comes into this world as a moral agent in the sense that they ought to be held responsible for what they do, right? Depending on, right. Right. Uh, Yeah. We can think about what we talked about with cows earlier. A lot of people, you know, I don't consider. That's where we get into mental illness even or anything, right? Potentially. Yes. So I think what this has to mean to be plausible is something like, you know, moral standing rather than a moral agent or, you know, needs to be counted as, which I think most people agree with. But then people are going to disagree about what we mean by comes into this world, right? (laughs) Does coming into this world mean at birth? Yeah. Or you come of age or something or... Or does it mean something more like conception? The whole question of whether abortion is permissible turns on what we mean by comes into this world in this sentence, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be what I would say there. Peter, did you want to say something about equal standing? Yeah, I don't think this is a wrong. I think I probably agree with this. And, you know, Boudreaux is limited here in like how much he can put in each sentence. But there is this question of like, what does equality mean exactly? And so equal, I think a good substitute for equal is same. I think that gets away some of the baggage of the word equality is sameness. And so there are certainly some aspects and probably most aspects that people aren't equal, right? People aren't the same as each other. They're not the same in intelligence or their ability to make friends or skill. You know, there's all sorts of ways in which people are different. Now, I think maybe what's saying here is like they should be treated as if they have the same like human dignity, something like that. Like there is a same quality that we all share. And that same quality is that we all have some sort of like sacred right that can't be tread upon. I don't think Boudreaux would use that language, but that's the language that I would use. And so, you know, we've been endowed by our creator with certain certain rights. Yeah, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So, I mean, we kind of read into that, but at least life, right? That yes. we all have that equal. Yeah. So I think standing. I think maybe that that's a way that I could agree with this. Now, you know, just saying off the cuff that all people are equal uh, to, to me, it depends on what you mean. I like th- this could be measurably incorrect depending on what you mean by it. So what do you think, Justin? But it, right off the bat, it does hit to kind of utilitarian arguments like it's okay to kill those four people, if we're saving a hundred people, right. That would kind of fly in the face that no, every single person has that, how he words it equal standing. No, this actually supports the utilitarian argument. You do. Okay. If every person counts equally and we need to kill four people to save a hundred, then we just run that utilitarian calculus and that's what comes out. You might think, oh, I actually don't want to apply it in these cases, but if we actually mean equality in the sense where you know, all lives are equal and therefore commensurable, then it seems like the only way to end up with the conclusion that, you know, about what we ought to do is to say, well, the moral thing to do, since everyone counts equally, is to maximize what counts. Well, maybe I'm reading more into this because I'm hearing what I want to hear, but I'm thinking of the unit of measurement comes down to that individual. And so one increment of well-being can't be replaced with the other. You're saying just the opposite. And I could see your argument, but I think it could go the other way too. And maybe some of these other priors will support that, but I don't know. Yeah. I think that's why the word equal is so tricky. I I think it's used to mean a lot of different things Mm -hmm. and multi-sense is a big problem. So you heard it here first. It seems like both of you are coming out against equality. (laughs) (laughs) And I I, look, I a hundred percent agree with A equals A. I believe that. (laughs) 
against equality in four tautologies. <laughs> All right, so who would have guessed it? We would have spent this much time on our first prior, which I thought we were going to blow through in about 30 seconds, but just that's what quick. you get when you have a room of with an economist and a philosopher, two economists, philosopher, and so anyway. Real quickly, it seems like what everyone can agree on is that whatever this means, we at least agree that there is some floor beneath we, which we don't want to drop in terms of respect for, yes. for every individual. Yeah. Is I, that, that's a good way of putting it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Number two, each individual has the capacity to choose. Humans are neither pre-programmed automata nor Pavlovian creatures destined to react to all stimuli in, in unalterable ways. And I have a major problem with this statement already. Okay. What yeah. is that? This, it seems perfectly reasonable. This is, right? an <laughs> this is an empirical claim. They claim that humans are not pre-programmed. This is a strictly scientific question. It could be the case, actually, that humans are pre-programmed. And actually, you know, maybe someday we could understand the programming. And so maybe we'll be able to come up with a, a way to predict, like, an individual person person's actions uh, well. Like, maybe it has some sort of, like, chemistry and you hit with the right stimuli. And maybe not, by the way. I, I'm not, you know, parading around saying this is true. But this seems to be like a... It's weird because these other priors are all like what I believe about the world, but this is a factual claim uh, about what humans are in like a, a scientific sense. And I think it's a unique on this list in that way. I don't like a lot of libertarians do this. Uh, I think Rothbard focused on this a lot, this idea of libertarian free will, that if you put someone in the same spot, you know, multiple times, they might do different things. I'm very afraid of people putting their hat on that because, again, we, we might find out that's not true. I actually think a better argument against, I, I think what this, this point is trying to do is say we can't engineer society. I think that's what the point is trying to get at. Because people are, are free humans, we can't engineer things right. I think a better way to do that is to take actually the Karl Popper route. And so Popper was a philosopher of science. I don't even think necessarily a classic liberal in any sense. But one of the things that Popper emphasized was that systems can't contain themselves. And so I agree that we can't predict the course of human history because that would require for us to have a model of humanity. And as soon as we make a model of humanity, that model influences humanity. So then you have to insert the model into the model, but then you've got two models. And so you have to insert that. So it, it's, it's a logical contradiction, it basically, to, to say we can plan all of society. But I don't think that hinges on individual freedom in certain free will sense. I don't believe in free will personally. So, mm. boy, there's a lot there. But so I think I agree with some of what you say. He says reacting to all stimuli in unalterable ways. That yeah, I guess it is going against what you're thinking if you don't if you think we are deterministic. Yep. Didn't we have a podcast on hard determinism versus... I wasn't here at the time. Uh, yeah, oh, we yeah. We might, maybe we'll have to revisit that one because I have some feelings on that one that I don't want to derail this too far on. So My disagreements with Peter here are merely semantic. So I agree 100% that I think it's dangerous to base your ideology on this empirical claim. And I do think it is an empirical claim about whether... To what extent we are determined? Yeah, we are at least partially nature nurture. Right? Uh, okay. We might be totally determined. We don't know that right. extent. Yeah. Now, my difference with Peter is that I'm a compatibilist, so I think that whatever, to whatever extent we end up being determined, we still have free will. And so, I think that you know I agree with Peter on what he says also about what 
is trying to be preserved here. And I think the core truth of this claim, which is something like society can't be engineered, especially not from the top down, and uh, it's dangerous to try to do it. And maybe something like the locus of responsibility resides at the individual, regardless of how determined we may turn out to be. Yeah. So in in fairness to Berdreau, the priors are his priors and they're presuppositions about how he thinks things work. Right. So while we're, while we're debating, I mean, I just want to say that this is in some sense, his opinion or the way he views the world. I agree, but the issue is trying to put it off that in more generally. Yeah. but, But the issue is like, if my, I have as one of my priors for my political worldview that the world rotates around Pluto, the earth rotates around Pluto. And that somehow is like a foundational building block. Yeah. One of my priors that I accept. So then I debase myself if I'm wrong on that. And so that I think in general, our worldviews shouldn't be based on like these scientific empirical questions. I, I think that's at least kind of a, a hard road to go down. And he also calls them priors, not axioms, right? The point of a prior is that they're open to change with, you know, experience or or debate. Sure. So, you know, since these aren't axioms, update your priors, man. All right. Well, so we're come to halftime already, believe it or not. We've made it through one and two. And so number three, I'll just kind of do as the teaser going in. Adults ought to be responsible for the choices they make. That sounds pretty reasonable, but I have a feeling there might be some challenge to that. So we'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordian Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governments, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom, justice, and its impact on human flourishing. We have a high school event coming up uh, that has a nationwide call. We've partnered up with the Foundation for Economic Education and bringing in some great speakers like T.K. Coleman and Dr. Jim Gortney. And the students will be participating in our new PPE League event. That is Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, where high school minds compete and flourish. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. All right. So our cliffhanger was on number three here. Adults ought to be responsible for the choices they make. Each adult deserves to reap the rewards that come from good choices and should suffer consequences that come from bad choices. So that just sounds like good old-fashioned accountability. Who's going to beef about that one? Up goes my hand. Look, I think most of these are extremely good rules of thumb. Yeah. But I think a lot of them are literally false as written. Yeah. So good and bad here are also in scare quotes. And so (laughs) that could mean two different things. We could be saying good in terms of like good outcomes and bad in terms of bad outcomes. And then I think it's false as written that adults all ought not always be responsible for choices that they make that have outcomes that are uh, materially bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I believe in charity. And so some of the choices you make that was dumb, whether it was drugs or breaking a law or something. And and so I'm actually a believer in a social safety net 
to a very limited extent from, from, a, from a government standpoint, but certainly private charity would help us help the person who otherwise should be paying the pain, so to speak. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that's even against the, I think, the more plausible version of this. But if it's just bad outcomes, then we can think that people who have been tricked, people who make uh, de, you know, decisions mm-hmm. that have bad outcomes based that are of no fault of their own, sure. you know, those could be bad decisions that they led to a bad outcome. But if they weren't reasoning badly, then we usually think they deserve some kind of you know, pass or whatever. And what, what you were bringing up is even people who make stupid decisions where they should have known better, right? Right. And maybe that they deserve mercy too. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of that's in a lot of faith traditions that, you know, uh, we owe mercy to people, even if they've made bad decisions. Right. But maybe what this hints at is something more like we need to regard that as charity, not as something like political obligation. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in general, reap what you sow, economic justice. I've heard something along those lines claimed. And I, I think, like you say, rule of thumb, but. There's more to life than that. And we do want a society where, in general, you are rewarded for making good decisions. Right. All right, Nate, what do you got for number four? Number four is each adult knows his or her interests better than does anyone else. And each adult has stronger incentives than does anyone else to look after those interests. Hmm. Again, in general, it sounds like a good thing to go from. But where are our exceptions? Loop. Can I take it from a college perspective? <laughs> Honestly, I'm just so, so young. I don't know my best interest right now. Oh, like, please don't say that. I mean, we're so young. You're supposed to be inspiring for all the people oh, out there listening. That I have, think we're in good I have hands. great goals of what I want to do. <laughs> but how am I to know right now that it's my best interest? I'm so, so young. But I guess it does say adult. I'm an adult. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to be able to crawl out of that one. Yeah, I can't crawl out of that. And you will not be coddled here at the Gortney Institute. So you better learn your best interest here real quick. (laughs) But again, yeah, good uh, rule of thumb. It doesn't, I guess it doesn't preclude that we, you know, if that's your baseline, that that person shouldn't be able to reach out for help. But some people don't know to reach out for help, right? I guess that that might be part of it. You brought up mental illness earlier, right? I mean, you can read this through that lens and it seems like, okay, maybe we should just like, Take the presupposition that in general, most adults, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, and so maybe we shouldn't be bogged down as we work through this. So should we just talk about the median person or the average person or whatever? And, and I tend to agree with this, that you have the strongest incentive to know your interests compared to anybody else. Family may be a close second, but I think everyone kind of is searching to do their best. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly the principle of subsidiarity. Uh, knowing those that you're closest to would fall in there. So Luke, you want to take number five? Each person cares more about himself or herself and about those whom he or she loves and befriends than that person cares about strangers. But differently, no person will consistently value the welfare of strangers as highly as he or she values his or her own welfare. I feel like some faith traditions maybe and and other cultures fight against that one. And so maybe in the Far East, some of the Asian traditions would be, we are all one family. So you're not really thinking about himself or herself, as he says in the opening statement. Yeah, I I think I agree with this. And 
pretty much without reservations here is that you just don't have it's sort of ingrained in us you just don't have the same incentive to care about strangers than you do someone who you know and like and that extends to family and friends and so the, i think th this is another actually maybe empirical claim but i think this is one that's basically true and i think this the way it's stated in the second clause that no person will consistently value the welfare of strangers yeah so that seems obviously true yeah right? yeah yeah, and I, I like Adam Smith's claim on the atrocity that happens over across the ocean. We all gasp at the deaths and the horror that's happening maybe during a war or something else. I can't remember his exact example. But no, so, no sooner than 15, five minutes later, when you get a paper cut, you are much more concerned about your finger than you are about the deaths and atrocities that are happening in lands far, far away. And I think that kind of speaks to that a little bit. All right, Peter, you want to take six? Yep. Six is short. Voluntary exchanges are advantageous to all parties to such exchanges. Done. Drop the mic. Move on to number seven. No. <laughs> I mean, that's what we talk about in principles class, right? If, it, if it's truly voluntary, you know, and I guess uh, maybe what would be added, I'm not sure if it gets added later, would be if there's not symmetric information, if both parties don't have equal amounts of inf information or if there's fraud on one side. But certainly the, the vast majority of voluntary exchanges, the baseline is you wouldn't do it if it didn't make you better off. That's the whole point of emphasizing the voluntary exchange. Well, you've just said robbed this uh, of all its force, right? <laughs> or of a lot. Like, I think that what you just agreed to, though, right, is like there are these caveats, right? And we can say that voluntary exchanges, most of the time, are uh, at least seem like they're advantageous to most parties. Yeah. So we have this difference between, you know, foreseen outcome and actual outcome. Yeah. That X and the X post. Yep. And yep. this looks like it's talking about X post outcomes, right? But right. to be plausible, it has to be talking about ex-ante outcomes and it has to be talking about ex-ante outcomes for people who have equal or the same information who are reasoning correctly. But again, look, all, all you really need to get the force of this is that most voluntary exchanges are advantageous to most parties. Yeah, and are good, therefore. Increases society's welfare because two human beings going back to item number one that are all respected moral agents, which we had our differences on what that meant exactly. But if both people are made better off, then society just got made better off. Yeah. But again, this is what I think like Peter was talking about with that first one that drives me crazy about some of these is like, if you try to build a argument based on an overstatement of a claim, then somebody's just going to come in and come up with one example that defeats this claim that you've oversold mm -hmm. um, and claim that they've defeated your argument. All right, so this next one, number seven is on voluntary exchange. Voluntary exchanges that are conducted across political borders differ in no essential ways from voluntary exchanges that take place entirely within political borders. So he's trying to tease at international trade maybe there. Yeah, I. this is another one that you can nitpick, but I agree with basically that, that for the two people in the, the, in the exchange, uh, it's really no different if you're across the pond or right next door. I, that's, I basically think this is correct. Again, you can nitpick. You can say, well, one essential way is that it's across political borders. But I, I think the essential does a lot of work here, but I, I understand the work that it's doing. Yeah, I think the only pushback would be 
if those people who are getting harmed from international trade are close to you and they're the ones getting hurt and they're in your world, I think you could play some sort of devil's advocate to that, that it's not good for you, but for overall, there's, you can't deny the gains from trade, from voluntary exchange. And I um, almost had it off the top of my head, but couldn't quite pull it off. Justin, your, your principle of permitted partiality. Permitted partiality. So I don't know, do you think that plays into this, Justin, at all with when we start talking about trading with Japan and Japan's suppliers win and Japan's consumers loses and vice versa in the United States? Yeah, I don't want this to turn into like <laughs> Justin has objections to everything, but I have <laughs> objections to everything. I mean, is it one uh, difference that in a trade that occurs Within, within the borders of a nation state, there is a sovereign that can enforce the terms of that trade. And that isn't the case when that trade happens across political borders. And so if one party is being screwed over by the other party, there is less recourse. Oh, I, would, I would think the opposite. I would think there would be more. The presence of a sovereign enforcing the trade probably, in my view, is more likely to take away from the trade's enforceability than otherwise political actors can provide legitimacy for getting out of trades and not being punished for it by creating monopolies and things like that. Whereas like under the market, you know, if you start screwing people over, you start losing customers. So I don't want to say the opposite. Well, then you disagree with me, but then you also disagree with this, right? Because you've pointed out a way sure. they're not. I think there are differences in the exchanges, but I, I think that the differences that exist aren't a, a, a difference in the exchange being beneficial to the two people involved. And also maybe other people would say, I'm unhappy with that exchange. And I think that base, those basic facts remain. Is, is what yeah, I, would say. I think that's fair. Yeah. And, and I think he's consistent with his number one that we beat up for a while that Every human being that comes into this world as moral agent has equal standing with every other human being, whether they're in China or whether they're in the United States or not, which means if voluntary exchange creates advantageous results for each, then that seems to be consistent there. I also might add that even if there's short-term harm, long-term, we have lower prices and those resources, the people who lost Mm -hmm. their job go into something new and the world continues to evolve. So it's more of a a process than just uh, taking a snapshot in time as well. All right, number eight, the initiation of coercion is almost always unjustified and is never justified by good intentions alone. I don't take issue with this. The key word there being alone, like good intentions by themselves are not enough to justify coercion. I agree with that. And I, I don't know what almost always means. Exactly. Yeah, almost always leaves a little wiggle but, in there. But, <laughs> but I think the idea is let's err on the side that we shouldn't coerce against others. And I think that that's And just to be right. clear, uh, listeners, co- coercion is almost the opposite of voluntary in this case. You're either forced to do something or you did it voluntarily. And so I think he's saying, I guess in large part with this almost always, if it comes down to force, then it wasn't right. Or it's unjustified. Yeah, I think what Justin said earlier about rules of thumb, that I think this is really the rule of thumb. Yeah, that force is only justified when there is something beyond good intentions, yeah. right? That's right. Yeah. And almost always not just. So this is one where he throws that qualifier in there where I go, okay, I have less, much less problems with this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Want to take nine? The world 
we'll always have an abundance of people willing, even eager, to predate on their fellow human beings. And many of these predators are skilled at masking their predatory intentions behind a veneer of foul benevolence. Faux and Boudreaux. Faux benevolence. So faking your niceness. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think this is original sin if we want to circle back to faith here, right? Where there's there's plenty of people out there that we shouldn't. I think of Thomas Sowell again, too, a little bit on are people in general good or are people in general bad? And that creates a conflict of visions. Well, this ties in nicely to the previous one, right? Because it says that people will always be willing to fake benevolence, that is good intentions alone, in order to initiate force. And so that's what, what we would want to guard against. I have a problem with this one, but that's just because I'm a curmudgeon. I like to hear your curmudgeon thoughts. It's with the language. The predate. Why, predate, <laughs> uh, predate did like, not. Yeah. yeah. When I, I'm like, predate, why are we talking about that? Yeah. yeah I, like I, a predator. I, yeah. Predates. Yeah. I like burgle as a verb. Burglars burgle. <laughs> I think that's a fun <laughs> word to drop into a sentence, but predate. Uh, <laughs> sounds yeah. like you're, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, I, and I think we'll wrap this episode up with number 10 here. Nate, you want to take a stab yeah. at number 10? Official power over others, that is the ability to initiate coercion without incurring the disapproval of society, is for those who hold such power intoxicating. <laughs> Holding and exercising official power is less a public service and more a personal and almost vulgar thrill. <laughs> is this House of Cards? Yeah, it, 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 does seem, it does seem to... To lay in some personal grievances he might have. I don't know. You're our public choice expert, Peter. What do you think on this one? Yeah, I mean, I I don't, especially if you follow from from nine. I I think that like the ability to do something and get away with it, and know you can do that, is something that a lot of people are you know happy about. And I, you know, uh, there's a great piece called Why Do the Worst Gets the Top. I I think it's Hayek. I should know off the top of my head, but I I'm a little cautious on that. And it's that, well, you know, if you have like someone who's in charge of like whipping people back in the days of the Romans, like who's going to be, you know, the best whipper, it's going to be the person who enjoys it the most, right? It's not going to be the guy who does it begrudgingly. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> it's just part of my job. And so he'll become like the, the top whipper, the head whipper. And then you just apply that to like any domain where there's something that some people find objectionable. It's like, you know, using power in a way that hurts others. Like who's going to be the person who gets on top? who's going to be the person who gets elected. It's the person who can do that the best and who is happiest with it. So, yeah, I, I think that 10 is pretty consistent with how I look at the world. It's true. Yeah. And, and the argument is that's why we want limited government or right. limited powers at that level, because that those are the type of people that might migrate up towards the top. So let's keep those powers pretty limited. Yeah. If you were allergic to power, you wouldn't want to be in power. And so you don't go into it. And so the people who do go into, I think 10 applies pretty well. Yeah. The only thing I would like, of 10 is that it might be a little too watered down as he is as it stated it says that without incurring the disapproval of society and i think plenty of people who enjoy power don't care about the disapproval of society what they care about is formal reprimands from sure. the power structure itself and plenty of people are willing to have the population hate them and say but i got away with it right um you know i didn't get convicted of anything yeah, yeah. if i did it yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Right. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. We'll be exploring the other 10 in the next one. So 
Appreciate you all listening here to the Gorton Institute's production of Faith and Economics, and we hope that you can pump up the ratings and let help to other people to find us. Other than that, be fruitful, multiply. Thanks. <laughs>